Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we have a uh, sort of a turning point uh, on, a, on a couple of different levels right now going on in, in, in terms of the, the, the year and uh, God willing for the good in terms of our lives. Um, actually, a number of turning points. Um, right now we're doing Parsha's Truma. Parsha's Truma uh, represents a shift uh, on a number of different levels in terms of where we've been in terms of the, the rolling out of the, of the Parshas, of the different um, uh, chapters of the Torah. Up until now, in Sefer Shmos, in the book of Exodus, we've been talking about the Jews leaving their enslavement in Egypt and then getting the Torah. And now, all of a sudden, the, the narrative in, the, in, the, in Sefer Shmos, in the book of Exodus, takes a very dramatic shift. And now we're starting to talk about the Mishkan, the, the blueprint, really, the incredibly detailed blueprints for building the tabernacle in the desert. Now, the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was the prototype, was the prototype of the Beis HaMikdash, the, the holy temple in, in Yerushalayim. And so, um, but it was, it was actually very interesting. We're going to talk about different aspects of it and, and what it represents and all the rest. But it's, it's, it's interesting because it was made to be taken apart and put back together. So unlike the actual Beis HaMikdash, the holy temple in Yerushalayim, uh, it, was, it was portable, which in itself is, 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 is very striking, but we'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more later. Um, so, so again, you have this incredibly epic narrative that's been going on. And, you know, I, I always just kind of, I've got a visual, like a, a movie visual in my mind where it's, uh, you know, it's the lone figure and there's a desert in front of him. And in the, in the background, he's walking toward, you see the silhouette of a massive city or empire or whatever it is. And that's Moshe Rabbeinu single-handedly walking toward this incredible empire, you know, that we're still talking about the glory of to this day, ancient Egypt. And then single-handedly, without any weapons whatsoever, the entire thing falls apart and he leaves with, you know, approximately two and a half million people, right? It's just, and it's in smoking ruins, right? You know, so it's, it's phenomenal. Now we switch from that dramatically to architectural digest, right? Where we've got, we're counting the number of hooks and beams and planks for the construction of the Mishkan. So, and, and then we're going to stay with that type of template and that type of, um, you know, rolling out in terms of the language of the Parsha till the end of the book of Exodus. So chapters and chapters of that. That's a very dramatic shift. So I always mention the Ramban because I just think this is really the greatest way to understand what, what just happened there. And, and also it's just, it gives us just this a wonderful macro kind of like outlook on just the history of the world and our lives and where we're going and what we're doing and all the rest. Um, he explains the shift in this way. That, and in my words, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, that, that now, now that we've got freedom and now that we've got direction, remember, the, the Jewish people left Egypt in order to get the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I can't emphasize that enough because as Reb Shlomo Karlbach put it one time, um, 
you can't really have freedom if you don't have direction. See, if you, if you have freedom without direction, if you have freedom but you don't have a plan, then you just become in a, a slave to your desires of the moment. Because I don't have a plan, so now I'm hungry, so I'm going to eat. Now I'm tired, so I'll sleep. In other words, the, the real freedom comes from having a direction that you're moving in. It doesn't just stop. It, the definition of freedom is not just to um, unshackle yourself. You also have to know where you're going. And you can be unshackled, but you, now, you, haven't, you still haven't met the base definition of not being a slave unless you know where you're going. Because you just switch your servitude to whatever your desires of the moment are. You become a slave to yourself. And, you know, to quote uh, Bob Dylan, you know, you got to serve someone. Everybody's got to serve someone. And so, so this, is, this is a great insight into the nature of human beings. And it's a, it's a bit of a, it, it's a bit of a kind of like a, you know, dumping cold water on someone. Because I think that, that when we think of ourselves as fully realized beings, we imagine ourselves as the boss. Right? Like everyone, you know, when you start off at a company, everyone starts off at the bottom, and then you imagine yourself working your way to the top, and then you're the boss. I remember in, in my field, um, you know, someone told me, you know, I always wanted to be an executive producer. And then I found out that the executive producers are working for the network. They've got to take notes from the network, right? And then the network has to take notes from the people who give them their job. And the people who give them their job, the presidents of the big media empires, have to take notes from the board of directors who own the stock. So there is no, you know, this, this fantasy of the person who's like completely independent and autonomous. It's a fantasy. It doesn't exist. But most people never confront the fallacy of the fantasy because they never rise to the number one spot. So they imagine in their mind that, that it, well, if I were to get to the number one spot, then I would have attained it. So they, they live and they're, uh, they're aided and abetted by their lack of quote-unquote success in their fantasy that true autonomy exists. It doesn't exist. <clears throat> and why doesn't it exist? Here's the point. Because we work for God. That is the point. <laughs> we work for God. And as we have said, one of the most relevant and trenchant midrashim is that Adam Harishon, the first person, was charged by God to name all of the animals. And he names the animals. And then the Midrash adds one little PS to that chapter in the Torah. God then turns to Adam and says, and what is my name? And Adam says, Adoni, right? Which is a form of Adonai, right? Which means my master. You see, Adam understood that his natural state, this is the first human being who's talking before eating from the tree of knowledge. So he's still in a 
uncorrupted, pure state, total clarity, understood that he himself works for God, that there's someone above him. See, America is very interesting. If you study sort of the, the philosophy of what it means to be an American, it's all about independence, right? This is, um, this is formed from the American Revolution in terms of throwing off the, 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 the British tyrants, right? But, right? They were taxing us and we didn't feel so we had a say in our matters, so we threw them off and it was the Declaration of Independence, Independence Day. Right? And then it was all about being a cowboy, right? And the cowboy is someone who's out in the Wild West and is independently conquering everything. And it's the ability for the individual. You know, the, the, the caste system was, was very big everywhere. You're not just in places like India, where there was a whole religious sort of like um, reincarnation-based idea behind the caste system. You had it very strongly in Europe, where you had royalty and you had the people who were dirty in the gutter, right? And you couldn't really advance through that system. Here in America, you had the system where a person be, could be independent. They could rise from poverty to great wealth. <clears throat> so in America especially, there's this temptation of this idea of now I am in charge. Right? Because that's a lot of the foundation of the appeal of America. You can now be in charge wherever you start from. But we have to recognize that while that might be true on an economic level, and a person can even rise socially, because you don't have the caste system here, right? Nonetheless, nonetheless, the idea that ultimately you're, you're ever in a situation where God stops being your master is it's 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 just it's fantasy it's fantasy and so one of the things that a person has to realize is that there's no diminution in a person's human dignity to be working for god right we say well wait a second so that means if i'm forever going to be number two that's sort of depressing isn't it like oh so i'm a, I'm a low life even at, at my best, I'm a loser, right? But that's also, that's just arrogance. It's just arrogance. It's the greatest privilege in the world to work for God. It's the greatest privilege in the entire world. And, and to show you what I mean by this, if a person, let's say Bill Gates or back in the day when Steve Jobs was still alive, if you were his lieutenant, his number one right-hand man, Believe me, you would be so proud to tell the entire world. I work for Steve Jobs. In fact, my, my office is right next to him. He calls me into his office to ask me things all the time, all day long. You know that thing that you have in your pocket that you consult 40 times a day? I told it to him, and then he told it to the engineers. Right? Your greatest, your greatest honor would be that you work for Steve Jobs. Now, how about working for the one who made Steve Jobs? <laughs> and guess what? You already have that job. <laughs> you already scored the greatest job in the universe. You have it. It's yours. Now the question is, do you show up to work? 
And guess what? You have a lifetime guarantee. How about that for a contract? You have a lifetime guarantee that you're going to work for God your entire life. Right? And if you don't show up, he's still going to, he's still going to feed you. Right? You say, God feeds every single creature. You know, I, I look at, I, I, it says in all the Sidurim that, and everybody knows that you're supposed to have special kavana when you say those words, that God feeds all of his creatures, right? And that's a special prayer for livelihood, for, for, for cash, and everything like this. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of levels to understanding the construction of the word. So one time I said to myself, I was looking at it and I said, you know, this is such a holy line, so it's a holy verse from the Psalms, from Tehillim, maybe I can see an insight into it. So I looked at it, and I counted the number of letters, and I counted the number of words. And you know what, you know what it is? Believe it or not, you can check for yourself. Posech et yedecha umasvilochol charetzon is 24 letters and 7 words. 24-7. <laughs> Meaning... Meaning, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, which is what the verse is saying, that God constantly feeds all his creatures, 24-7. It's, it's in the actual structure of the words themselves. And so I was thinking, one time I was, well, more than one time, but this particular time of being unemployed, I was sitting at my kitchen table, and I was thinking, I, you know, you know, it says God is feeding us constantly. I don't have a job. And then I thought to myself, well, wait a second. Right now, I'm not eating. My body is metabolizing food in my body. I am actually, I'm talking not just, I'm, I'm not being religious right now. I'm talking factually, scientifically. Right now, I'm being fed. Right now, my body is nourishing me with food. So God is feeding me right now. And that never stops. That process actually never stops. Every living creature at that moment, whether in the process of eating or they're not eating, is metabolizing food. So, so it really is true. It's true actually on a scientific level that you never stop being nourished constantly, that God is nourishing his creatures 24-7. So, so again, we have to not only not be embarrassed by the idea that, that, that we're servants of God and that this is our natural state. But we have to actually understand the glory and the privilege and also the, just the unchangeable reality of it, right? And to understand that anything short of that is dwelling in fantasy. You know, one, one, one thing in terms of my own spiritual development and, 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 and I say this just because um, I want to just emphasize a point we made earlier. That a lot of times people think that there is such a thing as autonomy. If I can just get to that stage, then I'll be able to call all the shots. People have to understand the fictitiousness of this. And a lot of people don't get to that point where they can realize the fictitiousness of it. So they dwell in this fantasy that it actually exists. I know that in, in my life, I set, like, especially when I was growing up and everything like that, I set like, very ambitious goals for myself. And I was able to, more or less, can I know her, achieve those goals. 
And each stage along the way that I got to it, I was able to see upfront and personal that it wasn't so great. That it's sort of like this sort of like promised land. You see, you got to, I got it, and there I am. I made it. I got what I've been working for for the last several years. I look around and go, okay, it's good, it's fun, but this is, there's got to be more than this. You know what I mean? So, so the reason why I tell you that, without going through all the details, is because I myself experienced actually getting it. You know, on my, on my own terms. You know, everyone's going to have different goals and things like that. But in terms of my own goals, just getting there and realizing that once you're there, there's way more. It's, it's a never-ending thing. You know, I, I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this. I, I did one time, and it's sort of like certain times in life you, um, you, 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 you sort of like live a metaphor, you know, where it's sort of like you just go, oh, wow, this is just like, you know, it's like, it's like someone's telling a story about what's going on right now, but only I'm living it right now, which is that I was in, I was, I was hiking, and... Um, and I was, I was with someone and we said, okay, so then let's climb this hill. It was like kind of like a little, kind of like a mountainous area, but not, nothing like the Alps or anything like that. It was pretty tame, but it was mountainous. And, and we'd get to the top of the hill. And as we'd get to the top of the hill, we'd see that there was a mountain, another hill behind it that we hadn't seen before. In other words, while we were on the bottom, all we saw was the top of that hill. But as soon as we got to the top of that hill, we saw that there was another higher hill behind it. And then we go, okay, let's go to the top of that hill. And we go to the top of that hill, and then we'd see that there was another hill behind it that we hadn't seen because we were at the bottom of that hill so that we didn't see it. It was blocked by the previous hill. And it didn't stop. And it seems, and, and, and this to me, like I say, it was, it's, it's very real about life. You think, okay, if I can just achieve that, right? And then you achieve that and you see, oh, there's something else. <laughs> I can just achieve that. There's something else. It doesn't end. It doesn't end. And then you go, okay, well, what about the person that, that gets to the top of whatever it is? And let's say it's a privately owned company, so he doesn't have to answer to the to the, to the board of directors or to the stockholders or anything like that. Are you telling me that there's no... That, that there's no version where a person really is in charge? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, let's say they get in charge. I certainly don't wish this on anyone, but I just want you to expand your minds and understand how these things work. And all of a sudden, it's sort of like they get a, a call. Their, their kid was in a car crash. Or they go to the doctor, and they've got this thing. And now, the, the issues and challenges never end. Okay, so you, you're focused on the financial thing. So let's say you conquered the financial thing. Then it can shift to the health thing. Then it becomes a health issue, right? And then, it, then the health issue can go away, and then it can switch to another thing. There's no shortage of challenges. There's no shortage of challenges. And all of this goes back to the idea that we work for God, and that that's our essential, and that's our essential life. Now, I want to go deeper now, okay? We're going to stay on the same subject, but I want to go deeper. I was at the, uh, the Karlovac Shul in New York a, a, a few years ago, and it was for, we were there for Shalashudas, right, the third meal of Shabbos, and, um, and uh, we started singing this song by Shalashudas, 
And it was, you know, after we had been singing it for a while, it just hit me. And, you know, all these songs like, like, you know, the, the, the singing, they're all meditations. They're all meditations. Like, and at the Happy Minion, if you, the dancing, if you understand what's going on, the dancing is a meditation also. The da- singing is a meditation. The dancing is a meditation. It's all, they're all meditations. So while we were singing this song, as we got into it further, I realized, I don't know this song, you know? And, you know, after I've been living with the different compositions of Reb Shlomo in terms of my life, you know, from the time I was young, and so more or less, I, I haven't heard all of them, obviously, but the great majority I have heard. And I've lived with them, more than heard them, I've lived with them. And I'm thinking, I don't know this one. And then I realized, no, 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 I do know it. I do know it. But something interesting had happened. And I'm not going to sing it for you right now, so I'm, I'm sorry if this is a little bit abstract. You can just imagine. The difference is, now listen carefully, is that normally, like at the Happy Meaning, we sing the exact same song at, to the same prayer at the same time. So it is the same. But what they would do is they would continue to sing it. And by the fourth or the fifth time that you sang that song, it became a completely different song. It was the same song. But the fact that you continued to sing it and continued to sing it, it actually became a different song. It's the same song. But it's a different song. Because by the fourth time or the fifth time that you sing it, it becomes a different song. So that means that there's a song that exists, but that you can't sing that song unless you've sang the same song over and over again. You can't reach that song that exists unless you sing the same song over and over again. And then there's a new song that's living within the same song. See, life is like that. There are moments in life that we can only reach by continuing to do what we're doing right now. Only by continuing our lives can we reach the new chapter of our lives. There are songs, the Torah is called a song. The Torah itself, God calls the Torah a song. There are Torah lessons that we can only learn by learning and relearning the same Torah lessons. By singing the same song, the Torah is called a song. By singing the same song, by studying the same Torah lesson over and over again, all of a sudden you reach new levels of the Torah and new depths of the Torah. There's a song that exists that's a new song within the same song. But you can only reach it by continuing to sing the song. Let me say it to you another way. Anyone who's had the opportunity, and if you haven't, you should make it a priority, to read the stories of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. They're amazing, 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 amazing stories. 
At a certain point, Rabbi Nachman said that he wasn't able to communicate his Torah teachings anymore in straight form because his knowledge had became, become so vast and his depth had become so utterly profound that he couldn't do it anymore. So he cloaked his teachings in stories at that point. And so the stories are very amazing. And um, if, you, if you want an addition, Rabbi Ari Kaplan has a, a book called the, the Stories of Rabbi Nachman where he gives a sort of a, an annotated version trying to explain the stories underneath the stories. So that's a great edition to get. But if you do get that edition, um, I, I recommend that you just read the stories without the annotations. And then if you can go back and you can read the annotations because the stories themselves are, are amazing. In Lahavdil, they, they read like fairy tales. But you see that they're completely, you know, just they're saturated with Kabbalah and Torah and depth and Hasidus and, and amazing things. But the language that he puts them in resembles fairy tales. And the way that he structures these stories, and this is the point, the way that he structures these stories is that there, one character will start talking and they'll meet another character. And then the other character will say, you know, this reminds me of a story. And then you go into, from that story, you go into another story. And then the character in that story at some point says, this reminds me of another story. And then you go from that story into another story. And at a certain point, you forget where you are. Like, how did this start off? How did I get here? How did I get to this song within a song within a song? How did I get to this place? Like, it completely plays with time and space. And you don't know where you are anymore. Now, our lives are like this as well. Because, you know, you start off and you're a little kid and you want to play a game with the other children, right? And then no one actually says these words. Maybe you say the words. You say, well, let me tell you a story about me going to college. (laughs) And then the person who's going to college says, let me tell you a story about me getting married. (laughs) And the person getting married says, now let me tell you a story about me having children. (laughs) And your consciousness gets shifted and you become, what started off as one story becomes another story and then you're living with a story within a story. And then you say, now let me try to get a job. And now you're within a story, within another story, within another story. And then sometimes the other story re-enters, right? And then you switch back, and, and it's so easy to get lost. It's so easy to get lost. It's so easy to forget who am I, and what was I supposed to accomplish, and what am I supposed to do? Because each one of us comes down into this world with something to accomplish. And so many of us, or most of us, or perhaps almost all of us, get lost within the stories, within the stories, within the stories. And we forget what it is. We become hypnotized by life. Hypnotized by the illusions of life. That, no, what I'm really trying to do is climb this ladder to be the one in charge, to be the boss, which in itself is a fantasy. 
Right? Because Adam, the very first person, said with utter clarity, I work for God. And if that's true for him, it's more true for us. And so comes the Mishkan. The Mishkan is setting out a blueprint with clarity and definitiveness and says, this number of planks, this number of hooks, this number of cubits, this is the blueprint. This is what we're going to do with our lives. This is the direction. This is the plan. Right? And it's forward thinking. Remember, the Mishkan comes after we've been freed from Egypt and after we get the Torah. And I promised to tell you what the Ramban says, so let me say it now. The point is, is that now that we're free, and now that we have a direction, which is the Torah, right? Now we're not going to just be slaves to the moment and slaves to our desires. Now we have actually a plan. We have freedom and we have a plan, right? Now we have to implement the plan, right? That's why the narrative shifts and it becomes about building this building. Because what was the Mishkan? It was the dwelling place for godliness in this world, the headquarters of it. God fills the whole world, but there's a capital, right? And the idea is that now we're going to take the Torah and our freedom, and we're going to use it to turn the entire world into a Mishkan, the entire world into a dwelling place for godliness. This is what the Ramban says, okay? And so it's true in terms of our own lives as well. We leave our own Egypts, right? And we have our own direction. We have the Torah and we have our our share in the Torah, what it is that we have to specifically accomplish. And now we have to move forward with the plan of implementation, with the definitiveness of the blueprint that now we have to build something. Now we have to be forward-thinking. You know, what's, what, what you don't see in the Torah is you don't see all of the... And by the way, maybe they took place. Maybe they took place, but there's no mention of them as far as I know in the Torah. You don't see people just saying, I, I, I can't do it because I was a, a slave. Right? I had a traumatic past, and I can't do it. Because I'm just weighed down by all the, you know, suffering that I experienced in Egypt. So... You know, let's all just talk about that. You don't, you don't see it. You see that after the trauma, there's the moving forward. And it's just like, you just have to move forward. That's what it is. So... So sometimes people make as a condition to moving forward, well, okay, so therefore, let me accomplish X, and if I can't accomplish X, then I'm not going to do anything. And this is another way that people enslave themselves. You know, it's, it's as my father, Oliver Shalom, would say, 
a little of something is better than a truckload of nothing. Right? A person has to set high goals for themselves, but they can't hold themselves hostage to those goals. A little of something is better than a truckload of nothing. And a person has to ask themselves at a certain point, what am I going to get from this thing? Better to have a little something from it, and then I can build from that, than to delude myself into thinking that I've got a real plan, which is this great thing, but what are the odds of actually getting to that place? Right? And success replicates success. You move from one thing, and then that works, and then you move from that to another thing. And that's, that's how you keep the energy going. You know, I don't know if this is a very good example, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me anyway, and I don't, I don't know if it will be meaningful to anyone else. But there was a, a turning point in my life. I, when I, so I, I'm in a creative field, I guess, hopefully, and um, <laughs> on a good day. Um, so I'm a, I'm, I guess I'm a professional writer, producer, whatever it is. And, but in, 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 that was never my goal, you know? And if you talk to a lot of people who are in the creative fields, you know, they, that's what they wanted from early on and everything like that. And that sort of sounds natural. But I wasn't thinking about that. I, in, in high school, I, you know, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then uh, in college, I, was, uh, I majored in government, which is, you know, I, like more or less political science. And, and I was interested in, in those type of things. And then, I, and then here's the point. I, I didn't have a job for uh, summer vacation. And I uh, became an elevator man. And on the elevator, I decided that I'm going to try to read a lot of the books that I imagined that my classmates had read that I hadn't read. And so I started reading a lot of the sort of like famous, quote unquote, great books. Um, in fiction. And I realized I wanted to be a writer. So, if I hadn't been an elevator man, I don't know that I would have been a writer. That's the point. So, we don't really know. We don't really know. You know, we follow life. And, uh, and it, un- it and unfolds in really unexpected ways. And that's part of the exciting part of life. You know, I, I'll, I'll dare to sing this to you, which is this uh, song that I wrote. <laughs> it's not for the music part that I'm singing it, or for my voice, but I just love the message of it, which is, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. Right? And that's the thing. Like, a lot of times, we feel as though, I'm only, I'm only going to trust in God to the extent that I know where I'm going. <laughs> but you can also not know where you're going, and be okay with not knowing where, being okay, you know, being, being okay with not knowing where you're going, as long as you know that the driver is good, right? And that's the idea that, you know something, I work for God, and I'm going to do my part, 
and God's going to drive me to the place that I need to be. So, so let's go further in terms of this idea of the Mishkan. Because the Mishkan is not just a building. The Mishkan is the blueprint of perfection. And interestingly, Sir Isaac Newton, who really, you know, wasn't Jewish, but was really arguably the greatest scientific mind ever. I mean, you can say it was Einstein, and you can have your other favorites in there also, but keep in mind that Einstein built his work on Newton's work. Newton was unbelievable. He was unbelievable. And he was very religious, extremely religious, you know? He actually died a virgin and accredited that as his greatest accomplishment, right? This is the greatest scientific mind perhaps ever. And, and, and he, he, that, that was something that he prized more than his scientific um, accomplishments. Um, and he loved the Torah. He loved the Torah. And you know what else he loved? He loved the Mishkan. He loved the Beis HaMikdash. And if you Google it, Sir Isaac Newton and, um, you know, the Holy Temple or the Beis HaMikdash or the Mishkan, I, I don't know what will give you the exact thing, but you can see his hand drawings of the Mishkan and the proportions and the dimensionality of it. He studied the proportions of the Mikdash because he believed that that was divine harmony. Because the fact that God made these measurements, you know, if you walk, I, don't, I, I like architecture very much. So when I walk around, I look at houses and things like that. And I look at the, the width of doors. And I look at the size of windows. And I see just, just what, what, what the person made, you know? I think I've mentioned before that one of my favorite things to do is watching uh, buildings and houses under construction because it's so satisfying to walk and to see a house go up, right? First, it starts off with something dilapidated and it gets torn down. You know, a lot of people feel like when something disappears that that's the opposite of destruction. But a lot of times when something gets torn down, that's the beginning of something great is about to happen, you know? And it only happens if something gets torn down first. I know it's very painful in our lives to experience those moments, but a lot of times those moments are the, the beginning of something great happening for us. And so, so first a house gets torn down, and then slowly, slowly, slowly it gets rebuilt and then in these neighborhoods that we live in right now anyway, one of the last steps, which I always look forward to, is when they put the grass down. Right? That's like the last step. <laughs> you know, they've got like this sod, this like carpet, and then they put it down, and then sometimes they'll plant some flowers, and then it's finished. And then you walk by it, and you say, oh, it was always like that. Oh my goodness, it was not always like that. You know, you walk by people in the community, you don't know what their stories are. You have no idea what they've been through or what they're overcoming or what their current challenges are. And you go, oh, of course that person's there and they're on time and they look nice and everything like that. Remember that, that, that great phrase, which I think is so awesome, that I, I heard uh, 
I don't know the exact source, but I heard it from Dennis Prager, which is that I think it comes from his mother or his best friend's mother, whatever it is, that the only people um, that uh, don't have any problems are the people that you don't know very well. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, it's really true. It's really true. It's really true. You know? So, it's one of the, the, the I, I, I heard the phrase one time, I think it's a, an AA phrase, I'm not sure, but they say, compare and despair, right? It's like, would you like, like be jealous of like an orange? Like, oh man, you got it made, you're so round, you're so orangey, <laughs> I wish I was orange like you. I wish I could put you in my pocket. I wish I could put me in my pocket. <laughs> right? You're just sitting there, got nothing to do, <laughs> got no problems, got no rent to pay. Right? Like, how ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. So, you know, the, the, so because another person also has two eyes and a head and legs, they're like, it's no different from comparing yourself to a banana or something like that. Every single person is their own universe. You know? I mean, there might be this illusion that you've got way huge things in common with them. They may as well really be an antelope. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm totally serious. For the purposes of comparing you've got absolutely nothing in common with anyone else. And it's a more healthy way of going through life because otherwise you're going to make a lot of false comparisons. You know, and it's true on the other side too. It says, don't judge another person, right? Or give, you know, and, and because God is the one true judge. And when it says, don't judge another person, People think, because, you know, you should be a nice guy and not judge another person. Be a good guy, right? But that's, it's deeper than that. Don't judge another person. You know why? Because you don't have the information in order to judge. Can you imagine, like, like you're being tried in a court case and none of the evidence is in? Like, but wait, I had an alibi. I was with this person at that time. I've got a thousand photos. And you really were with that other person. And you really do have a thousand photos. But no, no, no. We're not going to make that part of our consideration. The fact that I didn't do what you're saying I did is not going to be part of the consideration? That's right. No, no, no. Because we've got what this guy said. So anytime a person judges another person, they don't have all of the evidence in front of them because they can't. They humanly can't have all of the evidence in front of them. Because they don't know what the person was thinking, and they don't know the person's circumstances, and they weren't necessarily with the person at that time. Or even if they were at that time, they were with them leading up to that time. So you don't judge another person not because you, you're supposed to be a nice guy, because you will be wrong. You will be wrong. That's the point. So again, again, the Mishkan, 
the Mishkan lays out the plan. The Mishkan reminds you what story you're telling in this world. Because remember, we talked about singing those songs, and then by the fourth or the fifth singing, you're entering into a new song. The story of your life. First you're growing up, then you're in this chapter, then you're a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. Where am I? What am I doing? What's going on? Was I supposed to do something? Oh yeah, I came into this world to do something, right? I don't remember. I don't remember. So comes the Mishkan and lays out that plan. This number of hooks, this number of planks, this number of curtains with clarity, with direction, not looking back on the Egypt experience, but moving forward to implementation. And not saying I can't do it. Not saying I can't do it. The Ramban asks famously, we built this incredibly, these incredibly elaborate Vessels, like the ark and all these things, how did we do it? Where do you see that we had any high-level training in terms of the craftsmanship that was necessary to do it in Egypt? And it said, people just showed up and they said, we want to do it, and God put the wisdom in their heart. Now, on a deep level, a very deep level, we say that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was a microcosm, was a miniature of the entire universe, and also a miniature of a human being. Now, let's add one more step to this. The chief architect, the person who really put all of it together, was someone named Betzalel, and it says that he was 13 years old at the time. An amazing thing. And Betzalel means in the shade of Hashem, meaning that he was standing close to Hashem. And then they go further. They said that he knew how to combine the letters of the olive bays. So just like we've been learning that God combined the energies of the olive bays in order to create the world, and just like we're saying that the Mishkan itself was a miniature of the world, so the rabbis take it a step further and say that Betzalel knew how to make the Mishkan because he knew how to combine the letters of the olive bays. Now that doesn't mean that he magically made an incantation and then it appeared. That's not it. But he understood all the elemental energies of the world and he was able to harness this in the making of the Mishkan itself, which was constructed with real wood and real wool and real tools by real hands. <coughs> now there's an interesting gematria that, um, that I heard recently, and I, I'm sure it was, it's, I, I don't know who said it, but it sounds like something the B'nai Saskar would say, or the Juk of a Rebbe would say, someone like this, but I don't know, it might be way older than that. There are 27 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 letters, plus the five final letters, that's 27 letters. 
Now, if you combine, if you multiply that by the number 26, which is the gematria of God's holiest name, Yudke Vavke, 27 times 26 equals 702, which is the gematria of Shabbos. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, I, I haven't heard the official explanation of that gematria, but I'll tell you what that gematria means to me. Shabbos is, is Shlemus. Shabbos means completion. The Messianic era is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. What do we say? What do we say all the time here? It's my, my theme song. That do you wonder if there's a God? Why the world is so messed up? This is everyone's question, right? And the answer is because the world's not finished yet. And that's why we're here. God made us partners with him to finish the world. And we do that with the Torah and the mitzvahs. This is how we finish creation. So what did we say? That the finishing of creation, the era where creation finally reaches its apex, is the day that will be all Shabbos. So Shabbos and completion, right? What is Shabbos? The seventh day. Yom Shvi, the seventh day. That's what all of the days of creation were leading up to, right? And the Ramban says that each one of those days stands for another thousand years. So that the day of Shabbos represents the apex of the history of the world coming into fruition. That's the final era. Shabbos represents completion. What did we say? That the Mishkan has to be built. What are we doing right now? We're building the world. What did we say? That the Mishkan is a miniature of the universe. So what are we doing right now? We're building the universe, right? And how are we doing it? We're taking the energies of creation, the energies of our life, all of our life force, which correlates with the 27 letters of the Aleph base, because these are all the different energies. They're not just, we're not just talking about the physical letters. They stand for different energies. We're taking all of the energies and like Betzalel who harnessed the letters and harnessed the energies to make the Mishkan, to complete the Mishkan, what are we doing? We're taking all of the energies of our life and our life force and we're interacting with God. So that's 27, the 27 letters. These are the different energies of our life and we're interacting with God. That's 26, right? That's the Yudke Vavke. We're interacting with God with all of our energies. That's 27 times 26, and it equals Shabbos. It equals completion. It equals the finishing up of the construction of this entire world. So you have, in what Betzalel is doing, what we're doing right now with our lives. And that's building. And you know what? You don't know what you're doing. They didn't know what they were doing either. But you know what they did? They showed up and they wanted to help. And as Reb Shlomo says so beautifully, so beautifully, if a person says, I want to build bridges between people's hearts and I know exactly how to do it, God says, don't call me, I'll call you. But if a person says, you know, I want to build bridges between people's hearts and I don't know how to do it, 
God says, you're my man. Just the showing up and the desire. And then you get your assignment. Maybe it's a small assignment. Maybe it's a big assignment. But it doesn't matter. Because it's coming from above to below. And you're doing your part. And that's what it is. And don't measure it to another person. Because you're comparing yourself to a giraffe at that moment. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The only question that's going to be asked is the famous landmark, right? Can't live without its story of Reb Zusha. Reb Zusha said, I'm not afraid that God is going to ask me at the end of my life, why wasn't I like Moshe Rabbeinu? Right? He's going to ask me, Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? Right? Because all God wants us to be is what he himself created, which is us. Here are some questions and answers. The question about comparison. Yeah. Because that's something I struggle with a lot. Yes. As we all do. Yes. And I, I mean, obviously believing that that's not the way to go about it is, will clearly make me a happier person. Yes. But on the way, there's still something I want to understand because, yes, we're all different as souls as people want. Yes. But... You're a science guy, so from a scientific perspective, we, there are organisms, there right. are species right. sure. that do develop along a typical trajectory. Yes. And if you're a bird and you know your your peers are flying, yes. And you're not a penguin. Right. You're going, Wait a minute, I'm not a I'm not a penguin. I'm I'm that, but they're flying. I'm not flying. Right. What? Right. What do you do with that? Right. Because that's, I mean, it, it's good to notice that. Right. Yeah. So. You kind of run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a great answer. That's a, yeah. I don't know, but, but. That's a great answer, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Because the, the challenge, the challenge is, is to figure out why you're not flying. Mm-hmm. Right without being held hostage by the fact that you're not flying. Because sometimes people... Exactly. A lot of people can look into their past and, and it becomes a very productive thing because they're able to discover um, ways that they've been holding themselves back and, it's, 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 and then they can uh, learn not to repeat those mistakes. And for other people, they go into their past and they... And the exploration of their past becomes a new prison that they put themselves into. And so, so um, you know, sometimes the answer is, you know, to just to keep on moving forward. You, you know what I mean? And so every person is going to have a, an individual way to, to, to fix it. Um, so, but it's a, it's a very good question and it's a very great challenge. It's a very great challenge. Yeah. I, yeah. I would ask in between comparing birds and comparing humans is that humans are here with their a, a full neshama that is is accomplishing something in this world. It's coming as a mission, as a working through stuff. So if you're looking from a neshama perspective, even the others are flying. 
you're in a show that's here to do something that you might not even need to be flying. Yes, you're part of the bird species or the human species that usually know how to do these things, but that's not what you're given. This is not a tool you were given because that's not what you were supposed to accomplish. And it's actually going to be detrimental to you to accomplish what you need to do in this world. Because an Ashama perspective is greater than our getting by in this world of like... Yeah, I think that's a very deep answer. And I, I, I would absolutely agree with that. You know, it's, um, you know it, they say that there are certain... Um, you know, it's kind of funny. We, we do ourselves a bit of a disservice um, when we tell ourselves something very positive. I'm going to tell you the positive thing in a second. You see, it says that the Jewish people don't have a mazel, that we're beyond mazel. And that is very true on some level. But if you actually look, there's a debate in the Gomorrah. Um, it's in Gomorrah Shabbos. And there's two opinions about mazel. And both of them say, both of them say, the Jewish people have muscle. <laughs> the second opinion is that we are able to transcend our muscle through Torah mitzvahs. But the opinion that says that we, quote unquote, don't have a muscle actually says we do have a muscle. It's just that we can transcend it. So to say that we don't have a muscle actually is slightly inaccurate. And one of the things that we have mazel regarding is money. There's a certain money mazel that people are born with. And again, through a great act of, like a great Torah act, one can perhaps break through to a new mazel. It, it can happen. But, but there is a certain mazel in terms of money, say, and in terms of intelligence, they say there's a there's a there's a level of mazel as well. Different things. So so let's ask ourselves the question, and it's getting back to what you were saying, Miriam, about let's just look at it in terms of money for a second. Why is that fair that God's going to make these number of people you know rich and these number of people poor? Why, why is that fair? Well, what if the people who are poor would not be able to accomplish what they needed to do if they were rich. Then their entire time in this world would be one long exercise in futility. Un futility. So you say, okay, but they're eating at great restaurants while they're, you know, you know. But, but if that were the point of the world, you know, I'm sure God would have made lots of changes. There, first of all, there would be more great restaurants. <laughs> you know? There are billions of people in the world, you know, how are they all going to fit into the small number of, you know, restaurants? <laughs> you know, so, so in other words, when a, a person is given what they need in order to accomplish what they're here for, and again, all of this is very, very um, confusing. Because you say, well, how do I know that I don't need that? I certainly want that. It certainly seems like a good thing. And it may even be a good thing. And it may even be that you're supposed to have that thing and you yourself are holding yourself back. Or it may be otherwise. Or it might be otherwise. And we don't know. And we don't, we, we don't know. But we, but we can't psych ourselves out if there is something that we want. We have to continue to try to work for it. And so, again, you know, everything, 
everything, even wisdom, can be misused. You know, so the idea that it could be that my soul didn't need that thing that my peers have, that could be true, but, and you can console yourself with that because it may in fact be the truth, but you also can't stop working for that thing that you want. Cannot. You cannot stop working for that thing that you want. And, and so this, this is the great balancing act of life, right? And, and, and this is why life is tricky. This is why life is tricky. Because you have to balance the things that, you know what, maybe I don't have it because it's not good for me, but then not to take the next step, therefore I'm not going to try to get it, right? Or... At a certain point, you say, well, look, I've been trying to get it so much, you know, so long, maybe I should be concentrating on, on this, you know, something else. You know, this is um, now when it comes to career fields, right? You know, maybe I should just try a, a different field, you know? Um, but when it comes to, say, getting married or something like that, if that is in your heart, you should never stop pursuing it, you, you know? And then if it turns out that it wasn't your destiny, then, you know, it says that, um, it, it says that one of the questions that we're going to be asked at the end of our lives, again, there's a list of questions, the Gomorrah in Shabbos talks about it, is, um, did we, you know, did we try to have a family? You know, and it's, it, it's not even so much, did we have a family? It's just God wants to know that we made an effort to doing it. And, and, and God also knows that he's the one who gives the, the marriage partner. God knows that. So if God withheld that for whatever reason, for our own good, whatever reason, God knows that. He just wants to know that we tried. So it's, um, you know, I... Talking about the balancing act, I, I hit on this imagery one time, i just share it with you just fast, which is Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, you know, famously said that life is a very narrow bridge. The important thing is not to be afraid. And so if you want to just visualize this, and I'm sure you've all seen this in some movie or another, this is like a movie staple, this visual, which is the rope bridge between two canyons, right? With the wooden planks, and it's very treacherous, and you have to walk across this bridge, right? And then below is like just death, <laughs> you know, certain death. <laughs> and there's a breeze, and sometimes there are people chasing you with spears or whatever it is. It's not easy. It's like hard. So you think, okay, in that version, you say, okay, so life is a very narrow bridge. The important thing is not to be afraid. So, but... There's, that piece of imagery is helpful and not helpful. Let me just add one extra piece of information to it. Why, isn't it not, why is it not helpful? Because we think, how long does it take to get across that bridge? Maybe, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes. So Rabbi Nachman's saying is, that's your life for 80 years. <laughs> That's it. And maybe do 120. <laughs> That's it. That, that actually is your entire life moving forward. It never isn't that. 
but don't be afraid. But don't be afraid. And, and so that balancing act of it may never happen, but I'm not giving up. Right? This is a balancing act. And, it's, and, 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 and it will be true for that category and it will be true for every other category. You know, just to throw one extra thing in, I saw something um, that's kind of making the rounds now uh, on the internet, which is that uh, Hillary Clinton is now saying that she learned a piece of Torah and, and it's, you know, one of the classic uh, Hasidic uh, teachings. Um, it, it's, 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 I, I've seen it credited to the, to the Kutzker Rebbe, of course, who else? Like, but um, can you imagine the Kutzker Rebbe's Torah is like totally penetrating the heart of Hillary Clinton, right? Amazing, to this day, to this day. But it's also credited to the Pshiska Rebbe, and in print right now, it's being credited to the... Of course, the Pshiska Rebbe was the Kutzka Rebbe's Rebbe. So there are many teachings that are accredited to one or the other, but, you know, who knows who said them exactly, but it doesn't matter. Um, the point is that a person has to have two things, one in each pocket. One is the entire world was made for me, and in the other pocket... I'm nothing but dust and ashes, right? And now, here's the real part of the teaching. That, that's pretty good, too. But here's the real part of the teaching. A person has to know when to take the proper message out. <laughs> Did she get the whole thing? I don't know if she got that second part, <laughs> because I haven't read the article. It is a very... It's, uh, what's that? It's a very... <laughs> It's a very crucial part of the teaching. It's a very crucial part of the teaching. Because some people double down in terms of ego and pull out the message of the whole world was made for me precisely at the moment when they're supposed to be dust and ashes. And some people crumble and become dust and ashes at the very moment when they're supposed to assert themselves. Right? So it's not that that's a whole then then that becomes the work for the rest of your life. It goes from a beautiful teaching to what I have to do till my last breath. Because you making know? the right decision is actually building the world. It is it's it's like one of these quantum steps in completing the world, especially when a person in a high visibility position. You know, when the stakes are very high. At yeah, she's running for president of the free world. All the you more know? so. I mean, even, but even for the individual. Yeah. You're that, making that right decision, it's, it's just awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And they say, by the way, they say that that's what, I heard in the name of the Ari, that that's what got damaged in the Garden of Eden, which was the, the ability to know when to act and to when to withdraw from acting. And if you, if you think about it, when, when to take action is what I mean. Um, and if you think about that, you can boil all of your life down to either you're doing or you're not doing. You're either doing or you're refraining from doing. All of life can be boiled down to those two impulses. And that's the wiring that got messed up in, 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 in the inception of our creation, essentially, you know, or shortly thereafter. And so our wiring is like, is like we're still trying to f fix that. And how do you fix it? 
by keeping the Torah. That's how you fix it. That's how you fix it. 